This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. E. John Winner, it's good to see you. It's good to see you too. I have to get this window off. <laughs> you have a window? Yeah, just... this, is, uh, this meeting is being recorded. Yeah, oh, and, and it won't go. <laughs> there we go. Okay, good. You are being recorded. Um, um, welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience. It is very nice to be here with you all again. Uh, I'm here with Electric Agora's own E. John Winner, EJ to his friends and only his friends. Um, um, really, really happy to have you here. Uh, EJ wrote an essay for us not very long ago uh, called Marxisms for Dummies Like Me. Uh, a wonderful title uh, because it's not about what you'd think. It's not about uh, Karl Marx and uh, communism. It is about the Marx brothers. And so we're going to, EJ was kind enough to talk to me about this uh, essay and maybe about some issues that arise as a result uh, out of the subject. Um, and so uh, I'm going to just dive right in. Um, EJ, why don't you talk just a little bit about um, the part of the essay. Part of the essay is historical. You, you, you recount how the Marx brothers came into the so-called mainstream from a position of, um, would you call it Jewish vaudeville or would you say vaudeville was Jewish in general? And so there's no need to say Jewish vaudeville, but just to talk a little bit about how they came into the mainstream and from where they came into the mainstream. Well, we have to uh, actually, I think, make a note. Uh, it, it's, it's a matter of debate, uh, but not much debate among uh, those who know the history of comedy in America, uh, how big an impact uh, uh, Jewish immigrants had in comedy, but it was enormous by any count. Uh, many, you know, many, many comedians, uh, comic teams, comic writers, comic filmmakers, you know, are of Jewish origin. And there's, you know, that's just a statement of fact. Um, so where did the Marx Brothers come out of? Um, I think you really have to kind of go to their mother, Minnie Marks, and see where she came out of uh, as an immigrant from Germany. Uh, her father was a professional magician. Uh, so my guess is that there was a Jewish theater in Germany, uh, you know, because let's face it, Germans are, are almost congenitally uh, anti-Semitic, or at least were at that time. Hopefully they've grown out of it. Uh, hopefully most of them have grown out of it anyway. Um, so my guess is that she comes out of a, a Jewish theater tradition in Germany. She had uh, a couple of relatives who were already entering vaudeville, uh, especially, I, I believe, Al Sheehan was her brother. Uh, he was a part of a comedy team, uh, Gallagher and Sheehan, uh, and they were quite successful in vaudeville. Can you say something for people who don't know about what vaudeville is? Uh, vaudeville was a, it was a theatrical network, let's put it that way. Uh, if you have British background, uh, it's very much similar to what 
musical, the musical tradition of Britain was. Uh, and what that means is that it, they didn't put on, you know, plays. The dramatic theater of the time was still uh, dominated by what was what, what we call melodrama, uh, which is, you know, uh, set pieces about domestic crises, uh, which W.C. Fields um, uh, mocks brutally in, in a short film called The Fatal Glass of Beer, because the, the, the young man of that film, uh, who is the son of Fields, who beats him up <laughs> at the end, uh, the young man corrupts himself by by drinking a fatal glass of beer, you know, and getting kicked in the behind by a Salvation Army <laughs> singer. So anyway, the the point being that um, that's what dominated uh, dramatic film in the hinterlands. Uh, not dramatic film, I mean dramatic uh, theater in the hinterlands outside of uh, the metropolitan area. Uh, metropolitan areas were still, if I remember correctly, uh, the dramatic theater was still running through repertoire, you know. Uh, so occasionally full plays by Shakespeare, but more often, or, or more recent plays by, say, Shaw, but more often segments, you know, uh, a version of Hamlet that's only the soliloquies, say, or something like that. So anyway, there's, in that tradition, uh, there, there's not much room for, for comedy, um, which meant that, you know, people would like to go out for the night. They don't want to think, you know, they don't want to think about the soliloquies of Shakespeare. They don't want to worry about fatal glasses of beer. <laughs> they want to go have a beer, <laughs> right? Right, right. And so you, you would, you know, maybe stop at the bar next to, or the saloon next to the vaudeville theater, have a few glasses of beer, and then go to the vaudeville theater where you would have uh, singing and dancing and juggling uh, and comic acts, comic patter. Uh, so it was kind of circus on the stage. So it's a progenitor, not just of co of comedy as we know it, but also what, musical theater and other... Oh, it, it, yeah, I mean, a lot of this is developing, you know, um, at some point, uh, you know, I'll mention burlesque, for instance, and burlesque reached its prime uh, really after vaudeville had largely disappeared. But in fact, burlesque begins at this, roughly the same time as vaudeville. The musical theater begins roughly a little after vaudeville. They're all sharing you know, performers, right? So Fanny Bryce was both a burlesque performer, a vaudeville performer, and would appear occasionally on a Broadway stage. Um, so the, they're happening at the same time. The, the differences are largely economic. And that became most obvious in the 30s after the Depression, in the Depression when vaudeville collapsed economically completely. Uh, the, the Broadway stage transformed because they couldn't afford all, all those chorus girls anymore, uh, to be honest. They couldn't afford the big cast anymore. Uh, and burlesque comes up 
uh, on its own in the 30s, especially especially in the later 30s, because they're cheap. You know, they run the the they're in cheap theaters. Half the performance is a strip show, uh, and you know they're using clowns who uh, comedians who are, you know, they, they actually can be very good comedians, but they're dressed like clowns because it's it's, you know, the 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 audience is more drunk now than they right. were in vaudeville. So the performers, uh, a lot of the performers came from Europe. Did these forms also come from Europe? Because of course, you know, you think of the you know, Toulouse-Lautrec era and the, the dancing girls and all this sort of stuff. I mean, did vaudeville as a form also come from Europe or is it just the perform? Is it a distinctively American thing that just had a lot of European immigrants that were partake participating in it? Well, I, I can't say that, uh, you know, that's a little beyond my knowledge. But I, again, I did say, because I do know this, that vaudeville has a lot of resonance with the music hall tradition in England. Right, 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 right. Um, and in fact, there were a couple of American uh, comedians who started in England, most notably, most famously, Charlie Chaplin actually started, started in England. Um, so, I mean, there, I think that this is really, you're talking about a development that's simply inherent in the rise of urban modernity. Mm, that's that's interesting city. yeah that's that, interesting that in the, uh, because in the modern city you know you have a number of social strata right economically uh in terms of background and so forth uh, and you have um you also in that variant social strata you have people who are either out of work or have managed to get a nice job where they don't have to work at that time 12 or 16 hours a day. The, the, they may only work eight or 10 hours a day. They have free time. They have free time, they may have extra money. Uh, there's also simply, you know, if you, you're out of work, but you're, you have some way of getting finances, you may wanna, again, you may wanna go to the bar and have a drink, or you may wanna go to the music hall and watch pretty girls dance. Uh, you may, or, or you may want to go to a vaudeville theater and, and listen to, you know, comic patter or watch a juggler. You see what I'm saying? In other words, it's free time and money uh, yeah. and social stratification. Those yeah. are, are what creates the necessity, the need for something like vaudeville. Yeah. So the Industrial Revolution produces a whole class of people who now have disposable income to pay for entertainments, but they're not aristocrats. And so it's a little, yeah, I mean, this, this is a story that you also see in the visual arts play out. Um, 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 uh, and that makes a lot of sense. So, so the, the, the Marx brothers come out of vaudeville. Um, and one of the things that I struck me as interesting in the essay that I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about is the idea that, that in vaudeville, the, their brand of humor was very heavily Jewishly inflected and that what it meant, what one had to do in order to make it, you know, in the mainstream, to come out of vaudeville was to, to, to be able to pass in Peoria, as you put it. Could you talk a little bit about that and, and about, you know, the idea of, of a sort of a very heavily ethnically inflected act being, being acceptable in vaudeville, but that getting out of vaudeville required you to play in Peoria. Could you just talk about that 
in the context of the Marx Brothers? I think that's a very interesting question um, that I think uh, should be examined more carefully by those who, you know, sp spend time digging through the uh, the history. Uh, and I say that because, uh, you know, I was, as soon as you mentioned that, the, the name that went into my head was, uh, I've already raised her name, Fanny Bryce. And the reason for that is because Bryce, you know, had experience in all the um, um, entertainment fields of the day. Uh, her Jewishness was absolutely part of her character. And she played well in, in Peoria. Uh, and I think the reason why is because, you know, the, the fact of matters is that at that time, uh, the way Americans viewed Jews and Jewish immigrants, it was it was very ambiguous and ambivalent. Um, and the reason, for, I think there's a number of reasons for this, but what I mean is that you could play Jewish if you allowed, and Jewish humor does allow this, if you allowed the anti-Semitic to laugh at you. So that on the one hand, you're getting, you know, other Jews and, you know, non-Jewish sympathizers to laugh with you, <clears throat> but you're allowing the anti-Semite to laugh at you you're, by playing a stereotype. Interesting. Right. Uh, so I think that's part, you know, so how do you do that? I, I, you begin to realize how, what genius uh, Jewish comedians had at that time in order to, to pull that off. And also strength of um, strength of personality to not be broken knowing that, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Uh, so I think that's, that's, so then where did this idea come from for the, with the Marx Brothers that they had to change their vaudeville act to pass in Peoria and be able to make it into mainstream films and stuff like that? It, it, where did that idea come from if that wasn't, in fact, necessary? Well, you know, the, <laughs> the, the, the uh, Marx Brothers always seem to be doing things backwards in terms of conventional wisdom of comedy. And, and I'll give you, uh, this is one thing I wanted to say in the essay, I didn't have room for it, but it'll give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Most comedians, their stage personality, uh, you know, all comedians have a stage personality. That's clearly not who they are offstage. And most comedians, what they do is they take part of their personality and exaggerate it, right? So that, you know, the, you know Jack Benny come, comes across as, as being very, Woody Allen's a perfect example of that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it comes across some way, and it's clearly not that way. The interesting thing about the Marx Brothers is that they actually had to uh, modify their... They actually had to turn down their personality. So they were even worse than they acted in the movie. Exactly. <laughs> Offstage, off Groucho was absolutely vicious. Uh, Offstage, uh, Everybody loved Harpel. He was he was even more angelic than he shows up on screen. Off stage, Chico was a rabid gambler and con man. Um, <laughs> he actually he actually conned the Your descriptions uh, are wonderful. A rabid gambler and con man. <laughs> oh, he was a rabid gambler, gambler. and uh, he actually conned uh, 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 
there after the first two films for Paramount, he actually conned the head of Paramount. I can't remember who it was at the time. Uh, the, the guy wanted to um, pay the Marx Brothers 75000 for a three-picture deal. And Chico actually conned him into thinking that if he paid them $100,000, that was going to benefit him. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was he was a brilliant con man off screen. Oh, my God. Uh, far more so than on screen. So what I'm saying is that the Marx Brothers kind of do everything kind of backwards. The, the, they, um, in terms of toning down their Jewishness, I don't think that's, by the time they get to film, all right, I don't think that's really a concern of theirs, but they also, you know, I mentioned the story, the famous Nagadoches story, uh, the story about their uh, performance in Nagadoches, Texas, where the audience went out to watch a, a crippled mule <laughs> taken care of in Main Street. And when the audience came back uh, for the rest of the performance, what, what the Marxists did was just uh, lance into the audience, you know, that I think what's famous line I remember is, you know, uh, Groucho had a poem that starts, uh, Negadocious is full of roaches. So, I mean, and the audience bought it. They loved it. <laughs> uh, and that changed the Marx Brothers. That really did change the Marx Brothers in that, um, you know, they stopped being, un you know, the kind of comedy they did initially, the kind of, uh, well, first of all, initially they were actually, uh, Gummo and Groucho were part of, many had put together a, a now released musical act. There were two girls and, and the two brothers. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, then eventually Chico and Groucho joined them and, uh, and they put together an, an ethnic skit called Fun in High School, which I, I'm not sure if uh, Al Sheehan contributed to that. I don't think he contributed to that one. I can't remember who wrote that skit for them. But it, it was a, it was an ethnic comedy. Groucho was the uh, originally the German. Um, uh, <clears throat> Harper was the Irishman. Uh, Chica was the Italian. Uh, I don't remember what 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 uh, Gummo was. I think Gummo actually played an American hillbilly or something like that. Uh, and eventually, you know, by the time they got into World War One, uh, Germans were not liked <laughs> during World War One. So actually, uh, Groucho actually amped up his Jewishness and became you know, a, a Yiddish stereotype mm. uh, for that uh, particular skit. Uh, but once they got out of Nagadoshis, suddenly you have this the Marx Brothers, and it, it was almost as if Really, I won't say they couldn't, they could do no wrong. As a matter of fact, they ended their stay in vaudeville uh, on, a, on a sour note uh, because of the, uh, the person that they were working for, the, the, the Broadway uh, circuit that they were on, uh, really uh, had, was growing offended, I think, by some of their behavior. Because they, they, they were very independent. They, they, and, oh, yeah, it had to do with that they hired, I think they hired more people than this the circuit 
head of the circuit was wanted. So he, they were costing him money. So anyway, the, he said, you know, I think he fined them because the circuit managers and theater managers back then, the way they dealt with unruly performers was that they would actually dock them pay as a, as a fine. Uh, and so I think he fined them and so they didn't show up for a performance or something like that. I could have some of these facts wrong, but it did not end well. And it was at that point where they said, you know, let's, let's take it to Broadway. Let's take it to, you know, the, the uh, legitimate stage, which Broadway was, even though at that time Broadway was going through its musical review period. And when I say uh, review, that's what they were. They were the follies, the so-called, the, the infamous, infamous follies that, say, Ziegfeld produced. They were, they were reviews. They were basically vaudeville on stilts. Far better finance, wild costumes, uh, star turns, um, you know, Eddie Cantor and, and uh, uh, Al Jolson, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, they would have, they actually had a, a, a vaudeville uh, dinner theater attached to the Broadway theater so that you could go, if, 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 something about the review was not appealing to you, you'd go to the dinner theater next door and see Will Rogers and, huh. uh, and you know, somebody else perform. So this uh, isn't just a matter of, see, I got to, I, I was, I, I thought that what was going on was, okay, they're in vaudeville, they're doing all this very ethically inflected humor, but they had ambitions to get out of vaudeville and to go more mainstream, but that then required them to tone down. It sounds to me a little more like, vaudeville kind of was done with them <laughs> yeah it, it was um, and it also allowed them of course to meet one of the masters of, of broadway uh not uh, you know i don't even know i don't think they knew zigfeld or or were any part of the, the that review process they put on their own review and in their second you know it was called i'll say she is uh, and uh, it was a success. Uh, it was it was really just Marx Brothers being the Marx Brothers for forty five minutes plus some uh, you know dancing girls and, and uh, you know and solo singing act I think. Um, and then they really lucked out in their second Broadway show by hiring George Kaufman. Mm. who was a real master of American theater as the playwright. And <laughs> that was an odd relationship to say the least. Uh, there's a, you know, the, the relationship between Kaufman and, and the, uh, uh, the Marx Brothers is, is summed up by a very famous uh, anecdote about uh, uh, somebody came up to Kaufman who was behind uh, the curtain while it was, it was called Coconuts which also later became the first film. Right. So anyway, Kaufman's behind the curtain watching the performance of the coconuts and someone comes up and, and uh, tries to talk to him and notices that he's kind of spaced out or concentrated on what's going on and says, oh, what's the matter, George? And Kaufman says, I thought I heard one of the original lines. <laughs> it just... <laughs> In other words, his his relationship with with Mars Brothers was that 
it, you know, he would write something, they would tear it up, basically. But the, the, they, they obviously worked well together. He wrote the animal, you know, animal crackers as well. Irving Thalberg and MGM brought him back to do Night at the Opera, and uh, I think at least start Day at the Races. I don't think he stayed on Day at the Races, but uh, I think he started with it. But he definitely contributed to Night. So was the, was there comedy? I'm I'm let's let's forgetting about vaudeville for a minute and just talk about sort of their mainstream. Was it? largely scripted or was there a lot of improvisation i don't think i don't remember whether you talk about that in the essay uh they demanded good scripts mm. uh and the screenwriters uh script writers from perlman to uh kalmar and ruby um who worked with them will always complained uh always complained that doing a reading for the Mars Brothers was like pulling teeth. They would not laugh. They absolutely would not laugh at a reading of a, of a script. It was always, you know, you know, at some point, Groucho would get up and say, this isn't funny. Uh, or, you know, Harper would, would yawn and, and, you know, nod off or, or Chica would say, <laughs> you know, try to start up a card game. Uh, but. But mostly what they would do is sit there listening intently and not laugh because they were professional comedians. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly what they wanted. They knew exactly what their audiences wanted. And that was their only concern. So the, the, they were not there to be amused by their writers. So they were, were they, they were primarily comedic performers and not writers. I mean, they, they were not writers of jokes. Well, that is, uh, they were not writers of jokes, no. Uh, Groucho was actually a writer. He actually wrote a number of books and wanted to be a writer. That was his, his, actually an aspiration of his. Uh, but that's, uh, they were not writers of jokes in terms of their films. Or uh, they, but it would be mistaken to say that they were just performers. They did an awful lot of ad-libbing. Okay. Uh, good and, because they played to their audience. So if their audience was hot, you know, they would go as far as they could go with them, uh, uh, which meant going off off script. That's why Kaufman says, I thought he heard one of the original lines. I mean, that was a good night. It meant that, the, you know, Groucho was saying things to the audience. You know, there was no fourth, fourth wall for Marx Brothers uh on a good night uh, right you know, we address the audience directly right. they would add bits um uh, you know there were bits that they carried around with them that whether uh the writers wrote them in or not uh, in fact there's <clears throat> a number of screenplays where the writers would simply write uh harpo does business <laughs> that would be it. That would be the whole direction. Okay, I see. I see. So there was a lot of improvisation. Yes, there was a lot of improvisation. All right, let's talk about um the um the the transition to the mainstream because you have a very specific example in the essay that I thought maybe would serve as an illustration. Um so um you said that um one of the sketches from their vaudeville days uh, from a piece called Fun in High School, winds up in horse feathers. Bits of it, yes. So maybe you can talk, a maybe using that as an illustration, 
How was the Marx Brothers mainstream work different from their vaudeville work? I mean, other than just generically, well, less ethnic, let's say, but more specific, you know, more specifically, what was the difference between the Marx Brothers as a full-blown commercial act and their vaudeville days? And maybe if that, if those two pieces help to illustrate that, you could discuss it in terms of those. Well, I think... Um... To go back to the experience of comedians during silent film, I think you can see a trajectory uh, in that mm. the silent comedians enter film um, literally pretty much under control. You know, they they and all enter as stereotypes. There's the you know initially there there's nothing but a stereotype. You know, the, the there's the the tramp stereotype of chat. That's Chaplin did not start as a tramp stereotype. He actually started as a as a tough as, as someone who was uh, fairly well to do and and uh, would get home drunk and business would be trying to find the uh, doorknob and trying to walk. like a Bernie Wooster type. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Go on. Uh, but eventually, he did do some tramps shtick, and finally became stereotyped as as a, as a tramp. But he didn't stay there, right? He becomes by by the end of his silent career, he is Charlie Chaplin. You know, people come to see him personally. They want you know he has created not just a stereotype but a character a real character and as that real character he has enormous freedom in terms of what he can do comically what he can do as a filmmaker because by that time they by the end he's he's directing his own films he's writing his own films you know it gives him an awful uh, amount of of power and influence right and that's what you want if you're if you're you know a comedian uh what you want is the you want people to come see you, right? You don't want them to see come see the uh, German professor or the the uh, Italian. They want you want them to come see Groucho and Chico. Gotcha. Right? And, and so what what happens is that they develop, you know, those characters. By the time they get, you know, even in Coconuts, you know, those characters are fully fleshed out. Those are people. You know, they may be according to how you perceive them wacky or or um, shifty conniving you know or you know the insulting uh you know above the fray below the fray you know to the side of the fray you know trying to uh woo margaret demont you know uh picking pockets uh, you know making fun of everything all of that is true but they're we believe them as people and we believe them as people, not because of the characters, but because of the Marx Brothers. You know, so, the, so, so the difference between, let's say, the same bit as it would have been in Fun in High School versus Horse Feathers is that in Horse Feathers, it's these fully established characters that are doing the bit rather than in Fun in High School where they would have been less developed and and it would yeah, the characters right. would have been more specific to the sketch and not these them, right? Is that is right. that the idea? The line I, I quote in the essay, um, which is probably from 
fun in high school about uh, you know the blood rushes to the feet, gets look at the feet and rushes back to the head. Yeah, which is by the way delivered off camera because we're actually looking at uh, watching uh, Chico and Harpo prepare their uh, spitballs to, to shoot at uh, Welch at the time. But um, the interesting thing about that is that Crouch was assumed that we're in on the show. You know, that's why I say there's no fourth wall, even though there is technically a fourth wall throughout most of their film work. There are a couple of times when Gerald turns to the camera and talks to us directly, uh, usually to tell us to, to go eat popcorn while Chico was playing piano because he hated those musical interludes. But uh, so there are times when he does it. Uh, but even when that's not happening, even when there is a fourth wall presumed, they're assuming we're in on the joke. You know, we're included in their world. And I think that's part of the pull, not only a part of their uh, genius, but it's, it's a large part of the genius of, you know, a lot of great comedians is, is, is not to assume, uh, you know, not to play down to us. Yeah. But to create a world where their characters make sense, and then to say, come on in, you know? And, and I think, yeah, and that's very different from the kind of skit that the original fun in high school must have been. Yeah. Very, very different than, yeah. you, know, you know, flat. I, I find interesting this idea of this, 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 they, they, be, they become the characters sort of, and then whatever movie they're in, whatever the plot is, it's Groucho, Harpo, and, 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 and I guess they weren't, yeah, they weren't the only ones to do that, obviously, right? I mean, I, I remember watching a lot of, as, as a young kid, watching a lot of very old um, Laurel and Hardy movies. And they very much were, it was Laurel and Hardy in these various things. And they, and there was a certain, um, it didn't matter what the plot was, right? I mean, it was them, right? right. Um, um, and that's, that's, that's really interesting. Um, you talk in the essay a lot about, sort of thematically so you know what what were the marx brothers about and the impression i got from the essay was that they were primarily about rebellion defiance of authority a certain kind of maybe a type of anarchy to overthrow stuffy institutions could you talk a little bit about that and maybe give us some of the most strongest examples of that that you think well i don't know if you i I don't know if uh, they're about overthrow, you know, uh, um, and I think there's a, there's an, a rebelliousness that is about, uh, um, There's a rebelliousness, and, and I think that there are uh, roots of this in every culture, in every developed culture in Europe, uh, in the West, anyway. Um, that there's something fundamentally stifling about most of our social norms. Um, you know, this is, you know, I, and the reason I mention that is probably true about all of the developed cultures in Europe and, and now in America. You know, I mean, this is a, you know, what Bakhtin writes about when in, in uh, Rebellion, 
spiritual impantical that that's what he calls the carnivalesque. You're talking about sort of like in the American kind of something a little like sort of Sinclair Lewis's Main Street, that kind of thing. The kind of the 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 the, the stifling and ridiculous sort of uh, poses that that sort of social conformity imposes on us. Most of most of what we do socially. It it functions necessarily to keep us together socially, um, but in doing that, it also impinges on us. You know, there, it, it, and sometimes, you know, the other, you know, I mentioned Bakhtin and Rabelais. The other name that occurred to me was was uh, Falstaff. Mm. You know, and there are plays Falstaff appears in where you know. It, He's, you know, he, he's basically thumbing his nose at the decorum of Elizabeth in England, uh, and clearly that decorum for him is is kind of a joke. Uh, he suffers for it uh, ultimately because Shakespeare knows that that decorum is absolutely necessary to keep the society together, so he does suffer for it. But he also, in a sense, has the last laugh. Uh, in in his refusal to go to war, uh, where he, you know says basically that you know says you know courage is is a sop. Um, you know it is being used on us. I, you I think can't this remember. is not so much distinctive of the Marx Brothers. This you think is a core element of comedy, just simply at its essence. I think a great comedy is based. Uh, yes, it. It thumbs its nose at something, somewhere, someone, somehow. I think yeah, great comedy. Institutions, pieties, norms. Right. The carnivalesque that, as Bakhtin writes about it, the carnivalesque is is a necessary moment in medieval society, where you know the peasants are allowed to to run riot uh, because if if they don't, there's a possibility that they'll run rebellion <laughs> you know to be per per perfectly honest so carnival was a set aside during the middle uh, ages to let them blow off steam um because the religious and social and political and economic forces you know kept them down really kept them down in line doing things that either they did not like or even if they Went along with it, they did not understand. Um, and you know, the, co the comic, the comic is the comic of the carnivalesque is, yeah, it's like, why am I doing this? You know, the 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 Pope is a jackass, yeah. Well, that's and I say that I use that line because that's a famous instance for Bakhtin is, is that in these carnivals, uh, the 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 black Easter's. You know, which would be a carnival around Easter time, but it would be the reverse of Easter. It would be kind of a celebration yeah. of, of the death, not the resurrection. So this and is it, a but this is a kind of a reversal. In, I mean, yeah, in these Black Easter's, one of the figures that would be paraded around in the streets would be the Pope with the head of an ass. Yeah, 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 yeah. But this is a kind of you know it's interesting. I, I, it's making me think of a lot of things. So, you know, if you go back to the Aristotelian tradition. 
the the comedies are where actually you know you're la- you know if a tragedy is a story in which someone great suffers a fall uh, a comedy is a story where a, a loser suffers a fall right um in one case you feel pity for the great man who fell and the other you you laugh at the at the loser who fell and this sounds to me like you know it's sort of a this is a a counter tradition to the earlier tradition of comedy but then i wonder whether almost you could say that there was then another reactionary tradition in comedy because something I wrote in a, in a piece not long ago is that a lot of the best comedy is laced with cruelty. Right. And I almost wonder whether there is also sort of another, a new reactionary kind of comedic tradition. You know, I'm thinking of sort of the sort of stuff where, you know, you laugh at the stutterer, you know, one of the funniest things in, in money in uh, fish called Wanda is Michael Palin's whole shtick with the stutter. I mean, some of the absolutely funniest things come out of this, right? Um, um, or in Faulty Towers, you know, the, the constant abuse of Manuel, right? Um, um, so would you say that almost the whole history of comedy, there's this back and forth between what we might call radical and reactionary traditions? Well, you know, you mentioned Aristotle. Yeah. So I think uh, we don't have his comedians. Oh, we have the poetics. That's where I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. Well, well the poetics was there was supposed to be a companion piece called the yeah. Peter. Uh, we do have in the poetics. He actually mentions what he thinks is a comedy, and it's the Odyssey, and he thinks it's a failed comedy actually. <laughs> um, and, and what it is, what the Odyssey is, of course, is the story of a uh, king lowered to the level by the end, towards the end, uh, lower to the level of beggar. And Hegel actually picked that up uh, in, in his writing about irony, because uh, Hegel had a lot of problems with irony. Uh, and one of the problems he has in terms of, of the Odyssey uh, in this regard is the scene where uh, when Odysseus has come home dressed as a beggar, he meets another beggar and the beggar says, hey, this is my place to beg. You get out of here. And there's a big fight between the two and and, and, uh, and uh, uh, Ulysses, uh, Odysseus uh, beats up the, 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 the home beggar uh, and, and pretty viciously. And uh, Hegel considers that the height of comedy, uh, comic irony. Um, and he, he was very Aristotelian thinker. I think he's thinking along the same lines as, as Aristotle. Why? Because what you have there is a moment where someone who is really, who really is beat down in life, the, the real beggar, is making fun of someone who we know as the readers, uh, listeners to the poem, uh, who we know is actually an aristocrat. Uh, so, so the comic irony is is again, it's it's, it's thumbing is the thumbing of the nose at the social norm. You know, it's it's I have there a, right a tradition to of punching down comedy that's important, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, um, um, and it almost feels to me a little bit like there's a tension between the punching up kind of comedy and the punching down kind of comedy. But at the same time, if I think about actual examples in the history of comedy, I can find both um, um, at the highest level of quality. You know what I mean? It's not like the punching down is all crap. 
and the punching up is all the really good comedy. I mean, there's plenty of really good punching down comedy, it seems to me, um, that I think does serve also a, a good social purpose. And that is to help us when we are down right. to make a little light of it so that we don't suffer as much. Right. Right. Um, yeah. um, um, so so what kind of if we're going to say that the Marx Brothers are on the more radical rather than the reactionary side of comedy, what version of radicalism would you ascribe to them? Uh, <laughs> Just manners, the violation of manners or norms, or do you think they go a little deeper against actual ethics and mores and values, or is it mostly just about pretentious asses, sort of? Uh, I think again, the Marx Brothers were geniuses in terms of you know skating along the edge, as they, as I said about how they deal with their ethnic identity. I think also in this matter they they skate they skate the edge um horse feathers is a vicious satire on, on college life but it really helps to actually have been through college to enjoy it in other words you have to actually say college you know i i hated it while i was there but actually you know i learned from it i or it helps me in life or whatever yeah, that, that, that's actually a really good point. I mean, you know, would Kingsley Amos's Lucky Jim be funny to anybody who hadn't been to university, right? I'm not sure it would, right? Um, um, and probably the same is true here. I mean, other than the sight gags, which are just funny regardless, right. you probably wouldn't I, get it, really, right? Yeah, I, well, you know, or if you think of uh, Lindsay Anderson's If, uh, you know, If doesn't make sense if the intent is to destroy the school. That is obviously there's the students, you know, yeah. uh, Malcolm McDowell's intent is to destroy the school. But in terms of uh, us, the viewer, that film doesn't make sense if that's what we want, because right. we can do that without watching a movie. It's the same thing with horse feathers. We can, you know, it's actually most enjoyable if you're a college student or have been a college student. Uh, as a satire, it's most enjoyable. Yeah. But they do skate towards the edge in closer to the edge in duck soup uh duck soup is but it's you know again it's uh, still on the edge because the 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 big villain i mean the, there there's uh what's his name tarantino uh trento i can't remember the the the, the guy from the other country uh, with the mustache uh you know he's clearly the the villain he's trying to get uh Groucho has become president of Fredonia uh, to to uh, you know start a war for economic purposes. So he's obviously the the, the bad guy. Um, but in terms of the satire, the real bad guy is Groucho because he's 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 you know the illegitimate. Uh, he he's legitimately the president of Fredonia, but he's clearly you know incompetent at the task. And does basically ends up the dictator of Fredonia by default simply because he keeps firing people from his cabinet and hiring idiots in their place. Sound familiar? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and and yet it's hard. You know, you can't watch that movie and feel that for Groucho. In in terms of watching the movie, you feel 
sympathy for Groucho. And again, it has to do with the fact that, you know, Groucho's performance assumes we're in on the joke. Yeah. Uh, we, we get it. Um, and it's, you know, Duck Soup was almost a box office flop. It was their least successful uh, Paramount film. So it was run one of a number of films Paramount released on this theme, by the way. They did one, I think it was A Million Dollar Legs with W.C. Fields. They did one with uh, Wheeler and Woolsey. Uh, I can't remember the... Uh, Diplomaniacs with Wheeler and Woolsey. So they did, I don't know what was going on in the head, uh, heads of the producers at uh, Paramount that year, but it was the year... 1933 it was the year when Hitler was getting uh, voted into the chancellorship in Germany. Yeah. In other words, everybody knew what was going on in Europe. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't nice. And, and uh, nobody was sure what to do about it. And that remained true in Hollywood. That remained true throughout the 30s. Uh, I think it was only the Warner Brothers who finally broke uh, well, in comedy, the, the, the most the, by the time who made Chaplin's Great Dictator? Well, Chaplin did, but I can't remember who. Produced. No, no, which company though? Yeah, I, I can't remember. It may actually have been produced in England because uh, Chaplin by that time had already had a scandal, a couple of scandals. Uh, I'm looking it up right now, just because I'm I'm yeah. curious. Um, um, it was produced by Charlie Chaplin. You're right production company charles chaplin film corporation and um it says country the united states um well, it probably was because uh yeah there are a couple of major supporting players uh you know but but yeah yeah obviously it was independently produced i don't know how he released it uh may not have had a wide release um it's very recognizable now but you know that doesn't mean that it was so, known, yeah. that, that it had the same kind of resonance back then when it was made. Um, um, is that the only example you could think of of a very clear reaction to Hitler? No, actually, the, 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 the clearest example is two films by the Three Stooges. Mm. Uh, um, I think the one's called You Nazi Spy. Uh, I'm not sure about that or... or I'll never hile again, or something. Like I'll that. never hile again. <laughs> if that's a name of something, that's brilliant. That's great. <laughs> they, they play Hitler, Mussolini, and, and Tojo. Um, oh my God. I've not seen that. Oh, you, you've got to see those two. They're actually quite amusing. Uh, Mo plays Hitler and does a pretty good job of it <laughs> or bad job of it which yeah, is yeah your bad or a bad job of it depending on how you on how you look but, at it but in terms of the major studios uh yeah it was actually warner brothers uh, who uh, started doing films that were clearly anti-nancy um and um that got them into an awful lot of trouble and they knew it was going to get them into trouble yeah it was partly because a lot of Americans wanted to stay out of the European war completely. They wanted to ignore it. Um, it wasn't, the war did not come as big a surprise as most people uh, think, uh, but everybody knew the war was going to start in the Pacific. 
there were, you know, I, I bumped into uh, articles at, um, from a Minnesota paper, newspaper, uh, a while back. And this is, uh, you know, summer of 41, I think. And they're talking about possible war with Japan. So the notion that, you know, that it was a big surprise, uh, you know, that part, that's just legend. Uh, you, we're, we were insulted at Pearl Harbor, but it was not a big surprise that that, um, yeah, that legend makes out, it out to be. Well, anyway, the, the reason I say that is that, you know, Americans did not want to get involved in the European war. That they wanted to ignore. Um, there are... There, there's a lot of history there, um, you know, the, a lot of financed uh, groups and industrialists had fingers over in Berlin and yeah. Berlin had fingers in finance groups and in industries in the United States. Uh, there were a lot of problems caused by that as we went closer towards war. I think there, there were and there was open anti-Semitism at the time. Um, and, you know, uh, Father Mulhoffen giving speeches on the radio, uh, you know, talking about the Jewish conspiracy and, and yeah. Henry Ford going over to Germany, assuring uh, Hitler that, uh, you know, we weren't going to be conned by the Jewish conspiracy. The Jewish conspiracy was all, all over the place and, yeah. and certain Places the German Bund, Nazi Bund, held parades uh, on main streets. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it was, was. We did not want to. You know, so the, the, there were a lot of people who, when they saw a anti-Nazi film, you know, would say, "Well, wait a minute, we don't want to offend these people, the Bund members of the Bund in yeah. New York." And we don't want to defend Berlin because we have financial dealings with them. And In that sense, would you say that maybe the comic the comic industry was a little braver than the film industry? I'm thinking of that Captain America cover, right? I mean, <laughs> um, um, which is also all made by Jews, right? I mean, like, I mean, um, um, do you think the, the comic industry was a little braver, or this there was much less at stake? <laughs> um, the money was so much smaller. You know what I mean? Than Hollywood, right? Than films, <laughs> than than. Uh, I, I think that that uh, there might have been that. Um, I, I I think it might have been that. Uh, it was a comic industry was a little braver. Certain comics in film were a little braver. Mm. Um, yeah, I forgot. Of course, yeah. Uh, uh, so. And there were some comics on radio that were a little braver. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I, I think people didn't did not really understand the scope of Nazism. Yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 very clear. Um, not just in terms of its anti-Semitism, but also in terms of its political aspirations across Europe. Uh, yeah. They really didn't get it. Yeah. Uh, um. I'm I'm just aware of the time because I, I could talk to you for hours and lose track. So I just 
I, I do want to just before we close out, I want to get a little sense of the Marx Brothers pl- place in the larger in larger things. And so the first thing I'm going to ask you is about their place relative to what I'm going to call Jewish comedy. And then I want to talk a little bit you to talk a little bit about their place in American comedy more generally. But first on the question of Jewish comedy. So when I think of Jewish comedy, the first thing I think of is the Borscht Belt. I think of Grossinger's this remarkable collection of comedians that came out of out of the Catskills and then went on to just become American staples. You know, Sid Caesar, Mel Brooks, Woody Allen. These guys all came out of the original, out of the Catskills scene. Right. And then just became ubiquitous in American television and and later film. I never, when I think of Jewish comedy, think of the Marx Brothers. I know they're Jewish, but I don't think of them in terms of the arc of Jewish comedy. So, I mean, maybe they're not that really a part of it, but that's what I want you to speak to a little bit. What would you say their relationship or influence is relative to that Jewish comedy that I've just described? You know, were the, were the Sid Caesars and the Mel Brooks's and all these guys heavily influenced by the Marx Brothers, or is it a separate tradition? Because a lot of them were vaudevillians too, weren't they, or, or influenced by vaudeville? Uh, definitely influenced by vaudeville. Um, the, the Marx Brothers were part of a Jewish community in Hollywood, and in, initially in vaudeville, and then in Hollywood. Uh, and I don't think you can re- really get around the influence of that. It's it's generational. What you're talking about, the Borscht the, the Borsch Belt, the Catskills of the 50s. Well, that's what we're talking about because the Catskills go back, you know, to the 1920s. Right. But you're talking about specifically the Catskills of the 50s. Yeah, Grossinger's is the most famous. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, the, the that's a generation the generation after the generation of the Marx Brothers. Right. The Marx Brothers belonged to a specific generation. Uh, in but the Marx Brothers didn't really seed the Catskills because of, because of geography, right? So the, the Marx Brothers were in Hollywood and these guys were all in New York. Is that what it was? Uh, it, no, I wouldn't say that because it was overlap uh, specifically, specifically on radio. Uh, but also because in, in terms of live performances uh, and radio and television live performances, there was uh, far more overlap. Um, and the the generation of the Marx Brothers, Jack Benny, George Burns, Penny mm-hmm. uh, uh, Bryce, uh, you know, that generation had, did have a, a large impact. The Ritz Brothers, that generation had a large impact impact on on the Borscht Belt. Okay. The Brothers are technically are technically uh, of the Marx Brothers generation, but they 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 achieve their pinnacle in performances uh, uh, both in the Borscht Belt in New York and also uh, you know I think at one point I said something about the Borscht Belt in the South. What I was talking about, uh, you know, I looked uh, looked it up and because I, I knew there was something wrong with that. What I was talking about is the, is the nightclub scene in, in, in Palm Beach in, mm. in Florida, which I don't know. Florida, Florida I still, I, I think, still has, uh, certainly has one of the largest Jewish communities in, in America. Yeah. Uh, and they had an amazing nightclub scene back in the 50, 40s and 50s. And the Roots Brothers are part of that. And, and of course, that scene ultimately transformed 
transferred to Las Vegas, right? And develops an entirely new nightclub scene, which is famous and important to this day. So anyway, the Ritz brothers are part of that, even though they're of the the Marx brothers generation. So there was a, a lot of uh, overlap. There was a lot of uh, influence. Uh, the Marx brothers would not, as far as I know, did not play the Borscht Belt uh, and really did not have to. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Rich Brothers were not successful in Hollywood. Maybe that's why they had to. The Rich Brothers were not successful in Hollywood. Not very. No, no. They, they made uh, they made like three or four films, and uh, of which at least three. Uh, they had one major film, which is a, a, a production of the Three Musketeers, uh, a so so production of Three Musketeers. But the the other films they did were were these B movies. Uh, murder mystery comedies. I mean, very run of the mill. Would you say just, and this is the last thing I'm going to ask about the Jewish comedians. Would you say that, um, I always think of sort of, so the, sort of the, the, the Borscht belt and an after always strikes me as much more heavily Jewishly and ethnically inflected than the stuff from, than the Jewish stuff from the earlier generations that like from the generation of the Marx brothers and stuff. Is that partly because it's post-war, do you think? And there was just a much greater acceptance yes, of think, Jewish inflection in mainstream culture. Yes, yes. Uh, there, there was still, I, I can't remember when I was uh, reading up on this uh, a couple of weeks ago. There was a moment, I think there was a, a show Sid Caesar was going to do. And, and that was nixed by the producers who said this is too Jewish. But by and large, in fact... Yeah, there was a there was a gathering acceptance of 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 Jewishness, and also anti-Semitism had such a bad reputation after the war. Oh yeah, it had terrible reputation in America, at least in, in most cities. You know, certainly right. north right. of Dixie, anyway. <laughs> and, yeah. Would you also say that that's why it was possible for such remarkable and very ethnically inflected Jewish authors to, to flourish after the war, people yeah. like Philip Roth and, and, and Saul Bellow. And yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Last thing, maybe you could um more generally just give us your sense of how you think of Marx brothers, the Marx brothers in the arc of American history, uh, American comedy general, like, you know, when I think of you know classic American comedians, I think of the Stooges, I think of the Marx brothers, I think of Abbott and Costello and, uh, and maybe a few others. Maybe let's finish with you just saying what you think the significance is of the Marx Brothers in American comedy. Uh, I don't, I don't think you can conceive of American performance comedy and by performance comedy includes stand up, include film, include stage. I don't think you can conceive of American performance comedy without the Marx Brothers. I think that's not possible. Are they the foundation or are they one of several no, legs in the stool? Of, yeah, they're, they're one of, of uh, I mean, there were, uh, even they would say, even they would say, if you ask them, even they would say Charlie Chaplin, right? But that's, but he's English, right? He's Jewish. Well, he's Jewish, yeah. 
<laughs> as far as the Marsmans were concerned, he was not only Jewish. They 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 all loved him. They all uh, thought he was he was the tops as far as comedy could, could be done. Um, so yeah, I mean, so they're one of several. I don't know who else can you think of in performance. It's Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, Buster Keaton because of, of his stunts, definitely. Um, I'm not sure, even though I, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of Laurel and Hardy, but I'm not sure Laurel and Hardy, I, that has nothing to do with my judgment. That I think Laurel and Hardy, Hardy probably not. Um, I, I think those characters are, have gone out of date. And that's the interesting thing about the Mars Brothers, about Buster Keaton, about Charlie Chaplin, uh, uh, about W.C. Fields. Mm. Those characters, you know, have not gone out of date. They're not. They don't date. They haven't dated. No, they're there's there's still people that we think we can meet. I don't know if we actually can meet characters like that, but I think we think we can meet characters like that. We certainly think we can meet a grumpy old uncle who's like W. C. Fields says, "I like children, plenty of salt." <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm, I think we can imagine meeting that guy. I'm not sure we, you know, the Laurel and Hardy really belong somehow. They reached their peak playing Victorian characters. Yeah. Uh, and so I don't know if they survive. But th there are a number of classic comedians uh, who have survived. And I think the, the Marsh Brothers are among those. I, uh, you know, I think there's something, you know, I hate to, to use the word eternal in, in relationship to any art. Or Especially literature. a popular art, I understand. Yeah, yeah. But there is something eternally beautiful about Harpo Marx, uh, not just his person, but his performance. There's something really, um, you know, it's not clear what would date it. Yeah. You know, so the the puppet show in Monkey Business, which, as many have pointed out, is is surreal. It's truly surreal. Where he ends up pulling his own leg, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know um, I don't know how you date that. I, I don't know what goes where you can reach a point saying, "Oh, well, that's that's thirties." Where in the comedy that came after do you most clearly see their legacy? Is there a comedian where you see it, or is there a trend in which you see it, or an era in which you see it? Where would you say? you really see the Marx Brothers legacy in this or in that, you know, like I could say that about certain elements of British comedy. I could I could tell you where something, where I see something. What would you say you see the Marx Brothers in the most? Uh, I would say the early work of Woody Allen. Uh, you mean like um, Sleeper, Take the Money and Run, these are the early films? Or are you talking about his, his, his written comedy? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I would say the early work of Woody Allen, before he decided he was he was uh, Ingmar Bergman. Before he became a philosopher, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, Woody Allen, uh, but it, it is noticeable. I mean, it's you know uh, Bill Cosby, and you know, we're not supposed to say his name, right? right? But he's one of the greats, in my uh, opinion. He was a, he was a great comedian, uh, and you know he did not. You know, there, there was a whole talk about uh, vaudeville circuits. In the 50s, there was a whole vaudeville circuit or uh, uh, entertainment circuit running through the South um, for, for Black Americans. It was called the Chitlin Circuit. 
and it had a lot of famous uh, black comedians. I know Moms Mabley was in it. I don't know about Red Fox. I think he was, but I'm not God, sure. Red Fox is funny. Yeah, but Busby <laughs> doesn't point to the Chitlin Circuit when he talks about his influences. He says Groucho Marx. Cosby says Groucho Marx. Right. Yeah. Well, do you think that was partly because a lot of the black comedic tradition was absolutely filthy? And, and I mean, Red Fox is one of the filthiest comedians. People people think because they watch Sanford and Son that they know what he was about. But it's some of the filthiest stuff I've ever heard. And Cosby wanted nothing to do with filthy comedy, right? That, I mean, that is true. Um, um, uh, and, and and the Marx Brothers are clean. Yeah. And, and, uh, there was a. One Were they I, even clean in vaudeville? Vaudeville itself was fairly clean. Vaudeville yeah. was not burlesque. That was one of the, 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 the divisions between vaudeville and burlesque was that vaudeville was clean. It had to be clean. You do. Did Groucho ever talk about why he wanted to do it clean? It was it was a job. You did it like I said. If if you did not do clean in vaudeville, you got fined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. Money. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so I, you know, and and later on in life, you know, when he was in his eighties. Groucho would say a lot of swear words and so on and so forth because he knew young people were using language like that and he was trying to play to an audience. I don't, I don't think it works for him. It's also the uh, times, Harpo, yeah. Yeah, Harpo, Harpo, I think, put it best. When someone asked uh, Harpo about uh, Letty Bruce, who I, by the way, uh, I should say I admire extremely highly. Right, I'm waiting for your essay on Lenny Bruce, by the way. <laughs> but when Harpo was asked about Lenny Bruce, he simply answered, I have nothing against the comedy of today. It is simply not my comedy. So he that understood was, what why it was important and good, but he just it was yeah, it was alien to him. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that's the real final answer on that question about whether you know, why didn't they play dirty? It, it just wasn't what they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, EJ, this is wonderful. Thank you so much, and. Um, I have to say that your your all the all the contributions you make to Electric Agora on popular culture are are some of my favorite things that we do, oh, thank you. and I very I really really appreciate having you uh, with us to 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 do that for us, um, and I look forward to talking to you again and to your uh, next essay. Well, I I thank you, and uh, I enjoyed this conversation. We'll have to do this again. Absolutely. Uh, you know, on on whatever topic you know. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Take care, my friend.